Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 123rd episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. Please call me JAG. I am the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels and animated videos. Uh, today, we are joined by Robert Zubrin. Before I even begin introducing our guest, I wanted to remind all of you who are watching us on uh, Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or YouTube, go ahead, get first in line. Use that comment section to start typing in your questions, and we will get to as many of them as we can. Robert Zubrin is an aerospace engineer who worked at Lockheed Martin Aer Astronautics before going on to found the Mars Society, which advocates for human Mars exploration and colonization. He has published more than 200 papers on space propulsion and expo exploration, along with several nonfiction books like The Case for Mars, uh, the plan to settle the red planet and why we must uh, enter entering space, creating uh, a spacefaring civilization and the case for space, how the revolution in spaceflight opens up a future of limitless possibilities. Robert, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. Very proud to be here. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just preparing for our gala next week, and uh, Peter Diamandis, who was a previous honoree, is going to be uh, joining us. And, you know, he and others like him talk about exponential technology and the rapidly accelerating pace of change as something that has the potential to solve uh, humanity's biggest challenges. But in the case for Mars, you sound what I took to be a bit of a cautionary note, uh, noting the, the quote, deceleration of the rate of technological innovation, as well as themes uh, that we focus on a lot here at the Atlas Society, the spread of irrationalism, bureaucratization at all levels of life, the proliferation of regulations affecting all aspects of public, private, and personal life, the loss of willingness of individuals to take risks to and think and act for themselves. You say, uh, quote, the writing is on the wall. So what does that writing spell out for us? And how can a new pioneer point America towards a freer, more innovative future? Okay, so uh, that's interesting, okay. That part of the case for Mars is in the original uh, book and is still in the revised edition that is you have right there. Um, but the original book was written in 1996. And, uh, you know, okay, I was born in 1952. Um, my father, all my uncles served in World War II. They came back, we had set the world right, okay? The US government could really do something, okay? We could defeat fascism and create atom bombs and interstate highway systems and nuclear reactors and nuclear submarines and get to the moon in eight years from program start. And so this was a very can-do society. And, uh, you know, the government, of course, had its fair share of bureaucracy in, 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 in those days. But um, 
you know, it was not without a track record of accomplishment. And, um, and then, you know, Nixon basically canceled the Apollo program, even while it was doing its greatest triumphs of landing on the moon. They had planned to go on to Mars by 1981. It was all out the window. And the space program, uh, which had started out as something storming heaven, became more or less uh, a status quo uh, bureaucracy, with some exceptions. But in terms of the biggest part of it, the manned spaceflight program, it went from being a purpose-driven program to a vendor-driven program. Uh, I mean, it always had two sides. It was the banner of the pioneer spirit, and it also was a government program that distributed funds to various districts and such. Uh, but it lost a lot of the first part, uh, the good part. And you know, in the 70s, uh, by then I was an adult and, you know, we thought, okay, things have slowed down, but we can get this thing back on track. This is a temporary aberration. Uh, and then in the 80s, okay, our patience begins to be taxed. When is this thing going to get back to what it was? Okay. And then now it's the 90s. And so that's when I wrote that book. And there clearly had been a deterioration Um in the willingness of the political class to carry the pioneer spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it was very interesting that at that very time, it was still embryonic, uh, there was a new force coming on the scene to pick up the banner, and that was the entrepreneurs. Now, there were a number of attempts to start entrepreneurial space programs in the 90s, but they weren't all that credible. Um, and it wasn't until Musk, who with this book, I helped recruit him to uh, making space and Mars in particular his calling, uh, where you had someone with the resources, both financial and frankly intellectual, uh, to actually initiate a, a private enterprise space program. But you know, Musk, I wouldn't say he's a Ayn Rand hero, but he's a Robert Heinlein hero, um, okay, which is sort of in the same direction. Um, I mean, that's it. I mean, Musk is a, is a fictional character uh, who has now materialized um, because the idea creates reality. Uh, but the the but now this is now picked up, and so precisely because the political class has dropped the ball. Um, someone else has picked it up. And uh, so now we're seeing a new a vigorous uh, space program, which is being led by entrepreneurs. Musk is the most prominent. Um, and of course you have Bezos, but uh, it's not just billionaires who, who are, uh, you know, doing this. That You have like uh, Rocket Lab, which is a, um, a company founded by a working engineer who managed to get investors and not only that, it's a New Zealand company. New Zealand doesn't even have a government space program at all. Um, and yet they've reached orbit and they're now, uh, uh, they're planning probes to Venus and Mars. And the, 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 so by proving that the entrepreneurial approach was possible, Musk has opened the door to many others. And, and not just in space, by the way. Um, you know, I did a little work in the fusion program and that bogged down as well. But as a result of Musk's activity, even though Musk has no connection to the fusion program, he's not interested in fusion power. Um, the, the, 
whole bunch of fusion startups are getting funded um, because investors are looking at it and say, well, maybe the problem here is the same problem with uh, space launch. Maybe it was not fundamentally technical, it was in institutional and it was the same wrong kind of outfit attempting it. But the thing is, yeah, you do have this uh, on the part of the government. Uh, you know, the government in the 90s was significantly inferior to the government of the 60s, which was inferior to the government of the 40s. And the government today is inferior to the government of the 90s. Um, the, the, um, and frankly, um, I've been shocked um, at the incapacity of NASA to, to deliver, you know, the SLS, the Space Launch System, which they uh, are getting close to being able to launch. Okay. I was actually on the team that did the preliminary design for that rocket in 1988. 1988. That's 34 years ago. There are many engineers on that program that weren't born yet when that program was begun. Compare that to the Saturn V, which from contract award to first flight, it's five years. And that was a far, far more revolutionary vehicle. You yeah. know, uh, so at the same time that NASA has underperformed, SpaceX has radically overperformed, um, and we're seeing a new space age. Well, um, given your kind of illustration of the devolving uh, imagination and increasing sclerosis of, of government, particularly with regards to space exploration and space in general, I wondered what you thought of uh, the previous administration's um, launching of the Space Force. Trump uh, received a ton of, of ridicule when he established it and as a sixth independent branch of the military in the last year of his term. Um, how much of that, you know, reaction do you think was just knee-jerk criticism of anything that he did? Um, how much just a... Well, most discussion? of it, I mean, look, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, believe me, but that was just, uh, you know, stop clocks are right twice a day. Donald Trump told the Germans they were screwing themselves by making themselves dependent on Russian gas. And they laughed at him because this is stupid, Donald Trump, when it in fact was obviously true. Okay, in other words, they managed to, sophisticated Germans managed to be stupider than Donald Trump, which is a high bar. But the, the but Space Force uh, is less there than meets the eye. Uh, really, it was a change in the org chart. The, mm -hmm. uh, all the functions of Space Force were already being done by the Air Force. Uh, and the problem, though, is, and I, I'm 60-40 on the thing, but the 60 is I, I favor the creation of the Space Force um, because the people that control the Air Force are ex-fighter pilots. That's their thing. And so if you want to be serious uh, leader in the Air Force, I mean, fundamentally, you got to be a member of that club, okay? Um, and it's a certain kind of macho kind of thing. And you know, the Space Force, they launch rockets, they control satellites. There's no macho element to that at all. They fly desks around, but it's a vital function. It really is. So it couldn't be taken as seriously as it needs to be taken um, if it was left inside the Air Force. Um, Got it. 
And uh, the downside of it, frankly, is that in lobbying Congress for funds and stuff, the Air Force has more heft. Um, so, but uh, I think it was necessary. Um, what, what are some of the things that a space force might conceivably in its most optimal state? Could you illustrate a scenario? Uh, oh, would it be well, knocking down um, incoming nuclear bombs or what? Tell us a bit about that. Well, at this stage of history, um, it would be uh, established. Asteroids or? No. Uh, it, 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 with the, the mission of the Space Force at this point should be uh, in time of war, being able to get a complete monopoly of space assets. That is, if we were fighting Russia, say, we eliminate all of their reconnaissance and communication satellites and we defend our own. Uh, I mean, look, you know, this Ukraine war really is a space war. Uh, the only reason why the Ukraines are able to fight back is because of precision guided weapons, which are being guided by GPS satellites. You know, that, that, that cruiser, the Moskva, was taken out by two missiles. They didn't shoot a thousand missiles and have two hit. They launched two missiles and they both hit. Uh, and the, the, and that's because they're GPS guided. Now, you know, look, um, actually space assets have been important in uh, some earlier conflicts like the Iraq wars, but they were obscured in their importance because we would have beaten Saddam Hussein whether we had space assets or not. It wouldn't have made any difference. In this war, this, the entire balance of, you know, the Russians have 10 times as much artillery but Ukraine artillery hits 10 times as accurate. Uh, so they're scoring as many hits as the Russians, even though they have one-tenth the guns. Or, or let me put it to you this way. Let's reimagine World War II, where you're fighting against not somebody like Iraq or something. You're fighting against a power that's got comparable uh, military forces. But let's just say, for imagine if the Axis powers Nazi Germany and militarist Japan had had reconnaissance satellites, which are just one part of space assets today. They would have won the war. I mean, the the U-boats, um, uh, shit, are we here? Yep, we're here. Uh, okay, um, I've got a call again that I have to get well, you know, I okay, actually well, okay. So, so here's the thing: uh, if they had had reconnaissance assets, the U-boats would have wiped out all the uh, ships. The Japanese would have sunk our fleet at midway before we ever knew where they were. Uh, so, in, in the wars, uh, frankly, of the present and even of the future, the ability to be uh, to utilize space, and in particular, being able to utilize it while denying it to the enemy is of decisive importance. And that is really uh, the mission of the Space Force. There's some of this other stuff, you know, the comical show, they're putting a base on the moon and this and that. And, and Space Force has kind of played into this a little bit because these little, but the, 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 but nevertheless, there is a serious mission there. Yeah. All right, I'd like to pivot to uh, away from politics and um, defense policy, back a little bit to philosophy. One of the most insightful themes that you revisit repeatedly in both the case for Mars and the case for space is the idea uh, that on Mars, in space or on earth, quote, there is no such thing as natural resources. There are only 
raw materials. It is human ingenuity that turns raw materials into resources, end quote. That seems to me a very fundamental distinction uh, that sometimes gets lost in discussions about environmental policy. Would you elaborate, please? Yeah, it, it, it is. And I'm glad you, you caught on to that. That is a, a critical idea. Okay, it's why Malthus is ridiculously wrong. Uh, and why the people who say we're using up the Earth's resources are wrong uh, and uh, dangerously wrong. Uh, because if, look, there's two philosophies here. One is there's all these natural resources and people here are basically consumers of them or using them up. And therefore uh, we want to limit the numbers, activities and liberties of people in order to preserve this pre-existing nature that, that has all this bounty and we're just wrecking it, okay? And that worldview makes everyone the enemy of everyone else, every race of every race. Uh, and it means the, the fundamental uh, purpose of government is to constrict liberty uh, in order to preserve the natural order. Um, the, the other view is if you realize that it is people that actually create resources and they do, and I'll back this up in a second. Um, then the fundamental purpose of government must be to protect liberty at all costs, because it is through liberty that we invent. Now, what, what is this business about people creating resources? Aren't resources just there? No. Okay, land wasn't a resource till we invented agriculture. Uh, and various lands weren't resources until we invented the technologies ranging from irrigation to uh, superior methods of plowing to you know, what pest control that, that made them possible to be farmed. Oil wasn't a resource until we invented oil drilling and refining and machines that would run on the product. You know, if Napoleon Bonaparte had sat down with his uh, generals and said, well, what's the natural resource of this country we're about to attack? They wouldn't have even mentioned oil, let alone aluminum, which was unknown to science until the 1820s, uh, or to say nothing of uranium, um, which was not a resource until we in, uh, invented nuclear power, but even something like iron, okay? You know, first metals people used was copper, then bronze. Okay, so you had the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age lasted for 3,000 years. For 3,000 years, the only metals that people knew about were the copper, tin, and well, gold and silver, which collectively are less than 100 parts per million in the Earth's crust. But once they invented kilns that were hot enough to smelt iron, which requires higher temperature than copper, then all of a sudden you have iron as a metal and it is 100,000 times, uh, 100,000 parts per million in the Earth's crust, that is 10%, which is to say a thousand times more common than iron, uh, than copper. Um, so all of a sudden, instead of metals only being something available to the richest people, aristocrats to use in their armor, now you have iron and steel tools, axes, as well, yes, weapons too, but plows and all sorts of things. And there's a tremendous multiplication of human capability when metals become literally a thousand times cheaper and more abundant. And then more recently, aluminum, okay? Uh, Aluminum was unknown until 1820, and it wasn't really a product that people could buy until the 20th century. And now here it is, it's so common that we throw this stuff away. And you know, 
People talk about energy. Okay, nuclear energy. Well, they all oh, this uranium ore and it's rare. Well, guess what? Well, uranium ore, very high quality uranium concentrations are rare. But if you take a block of ordinary granite, like a building might be made of, okay, it contains two parts per million uranium. And since uranium is 10 million times as much energy per unit weight as, say, uh, oil, um, a block of granite has 20 times the energy of an equal mass of oil. So you look at a mountain that's made of granite in New Hampshire or somewhere, you're looking at something that has more energy in it than Saudi Arabia's oil fields, uh, provided you bring the technology to that. And then there's fusion power, okay, which uh, the, this is a can previously contained V8, which is mostly water, of course. And that water that's in here would be 350 times as much energy as if I filled this can with gasoline. That these resources are created by the mind. And, and there's many more resources that we don't even have a clue about right now because there are laws of physics that we don't know yet. Now that may sound like a, a wild statement, um, except that for the fact that A, uh, it's always been the case in the past that people thought they knew all the laws of physics until they discovered the next one. And B, we have reason to believe that there are laws of physics we don't understand because our current laws of physics, while very useful for engineers like me, I can make things by taking advantage of my knowledge of what I was taught in physics in the university. Um, they're obviously incomplete because what they say, for example, is that matter cannot be created or destroyed. And here's some, how was it created? It was, okay, we have no explanation for it. Uh, so there are laws of physics out there that are waiting to be discovered. And those laws of physics imply new powers over nature and imply vast new arrays of resources that we can't even conceive of right now. Well, um, that brings me to another question because uh, we are going to find uh, natural materials and hopefully turn them into resources in space. I'm seeing a lot of great questions that are coming in uh, from our various platforms. And one question that we often get asked uh, in, our, in our own platform uh, at uh, the Atlas Society's Instagram account is how to handle property rights in space. Uh, of course, as you have read Ayn Rand, uh, you may recall that she's observed that without the right to prop private property, no other rights are possible. Uh, so it would also seem impossible to incentivize exploration and development of natural materials in space. So how are they, how is it currently handled and how should it be handled? Well, it's currently not handled. Um, the, the, uh, there's a, a confused situation uh, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 barred claims of national sovereignty in space. It's mute on the idea of personal property in space. Um, the uh, Artemis Accords, which the uh, Bridenstine was Trump's NASA administrator, uh, put forth, do establish agreements that if you find something in space, you can bring it back, you can own it. But that's really inadequate. I mean, that's okay, but it, it, it doesn't get you to where you need to go. In other words, you can't stake a claim 
um, for example. Um, and you can just go somewhere and if you find a, a good rock, take it home with you, but the, the next person can come and take some too. Uh, no, we need private property laws in space. Now, um, ultimately, for example, Mars, um, I think there will be governments on Mars, but they won't be terrestrial governments. Martian settlers will create their own governments and they will have private property laws. Um, and I don't know exactly how you, you feel about this, because um, private property does require the existence of a government. Um, you only own your house because the police exist. If the police did not exist, any group of people that was superior in force to you and your friends could throw you out of your house. Um, the, so there does have to be a government for there to be private property. Those two. Yeah, we, you, we, we wouldn't disagree on that. We're, we're not okay. anarchists and, and Ayn Rand was very critical of anarchism. Um, right. We well, just would say that the purpose of government is to protect individual rights and- Exactly, and that's and, it. So the government has to have force and then the whole political problem being restricting that force so it doesn't become a menace itself. The um, that's ultimately the, the, the problem of statecraft. But the, the, so yeah, I think the Martian settlers will create their own governments. I think that uh, we'll see a variety of noble experiments on Mars. That is, I think the form of governments on Mars will probably be city-states and they'll be founded by different people with different concepts of what the right kind of government should be. And um, basically natural selection will sort them out. Uh, we'll find out what the right government is by which ones grow and prosper. And I I'm convinced, by the way, that those will be governments that maximize liberty because only those governments will attract immigrants. Uh, this idea, the dystopian idea of the extraterrestrial colonies being uh, tyrannies, I, I, I think is unsustainable because no one would go there. Um, it It's the reason why the U.S. grew as a nation, but Haiti didn't. Um, you know, after both became independent in roughly the same time frame, um, you know, so right. the, 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 now in terms of the, the nearer future, what could be done? I've put forth an idea, uh, which I call the asteroid mining patent law. And the basic idea, it's modeled on the patent office. The patent office lets an inventor like me take an idea and turn it into property by fulfilling certain conditions, and then you get a temporary monopoly on the use of that technology uh, so as to incentivize people like me to make inventions and incentivize investors to invest in those inventions because there'll be a certain period of time when you can make a big profit. After that though, it becomes public domain. Okay, so that's what Alexander Hamilton set up and it's worked pretty good. Although, believe me, I got problems with the patent office, but. Overall, I mean, it's, it's worked. Now, the, the, I would like there to be a law that would say, uh, if somebody explores an asteroid to a certain specified degree of detail, they would then get the mining rights to that asteroid for some specified period of time. And it might be relatively long, not 18 years like that, it might be 99 years. The, the reason why I think this would be very useful is that while it's not really technically possible to mine an asteroid right now, it is technically possible to explore them. And if we had a law like this, you could finance asteroid exploration based on the speculative value of such claims. 
so we can have privately financed asteroid exploration or lunar or Mars exploration, same general idea. Great, well, uh, we have a lot of great questions. I still have many of my own, but I'm going to get to a few. Uh, hopefully, Yavud's Demis, we just answered your question about uh, sharing land on Mars and property rights. Uh, Scott on YouTube is asking, is if you are a fan of the show, The Expanse, which shows a colonized Mars and attempts at terraforming? Well, I, I was for a couple of seasons. Eventually, I, I got expanded. Um, the, 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 uh, you know, sooner at a certain point, it, it, it lost the thread, <laughs> lost, uh, lost the thread and lost the fascination. Uh, I think some of it was interesting. I thought the belters were interesting. Uh, I thought, you know, the Martians, um, once again, I don't buy the idea of a communist militarist Mars. Uh, the, perhaps the element of a kind of, uh, how can I put it, Puritan, by Puritan, I don't mean sexual Puritan. I mean, like the Puritans themselves who went to Massachusetts, who, you know, were Cromwellian revolutionaries. And they had a bit of steel in their spine in order to take on bitterly cold New England winters and leaving much milder climates in England and Holland and so forth. And um, that you might have um, among colonists, uh, certainly in the early years. I mean, that we saw that in New England, we saw that in uh, Mormon Utah, we saw it in uh, Israel as three examples of where you had people motivated by transcendental ideals to take on uh, rather improbable colonization projects in order to basic, basically have a world of their own. Um, the, uh, so you do, you do see a bit, I, I could see that, but I would also see that if you're gonna get immigrants to come there, you have to have liberty of a sort. Uh, it might not be exactly the sort that you and I um, uh, admire, but in all three of those cases, you had people seeking a fundamental kind of liberty, a liberty to be the kind of people they wanted to be. Um, all right, yeah. I've got another question here from Facebook, Zach Adler asking, who will win the race to Mars, NASA, private industry, or an up and coming power like China? Well, okay. Um, I, I believe it's gonna be America and I think it's gonna be a public-private partnership. I think that, that there, there is still the power to the, the, get this country to rise to the occasion. And I think that uh, potentially Musk can be the one who does it. Uh, that is, you know, you've got the starship and I, I think it'll reach orbit if not this year, then next year and be reaching it with some regularity in 2024. And if that's the reality of the world where you have these vehicles with Saturn V class capability, but 2% of the cost because they're reusable and you know, if that's what the world looks like in 2024, we're going to have an election 
And whoever is elected is going to turn to his or her advisors and say, look, here's this guy. He's got these ships. He wants to go to Mars. If we got together with him, could we get to Mars before the end of my second term? And the answer is going to be yes. They say, well, will it cost a trillion dollars? Say, no, we could probably do it within NASA's existing budget because he's got the transportation system. There's a bunch of other stuff that's needed here. We've got to have the surface systems, the uh, surface vehicles, the spacesuits, the systems for making the return propellant on Mars, the nuclear reactor, which frankly, uh, be easier for the government to develop because it involves controlled materials. You know, we put this stuff together. Yeah, we could do this. And in other words, by making this thing practical, Musk is going to make it sellable. And I think, okay, you know, call me uh, still an uh, old school believer. I, I still think this country is ultimately able to rise to the challenge uh, if it's made clear enough that we can do something grand. That we well, can that's... That's encouraging. All right, I'm going to take one last uh, for now. Don't worry. I see all of you guys who asked a bunch of questions, but I, I have a few of my own I want to also get to. But I'm going to for now squeeze in Maria Cummings on Twitter. Is there any sentient life on other planets? Do you take much stock of UFO sightings? Now, I don't take any stock of UFO sightings, but we view the question more broadly, I, my answer would be yes. Um, I think that the universe is filled with life. I do. Uh, I think there's no reason to believe that the laws of science on Earth are different than those uh, and the multitudes of worlds that we've now discovered. Uh, Kepler telescope has discovered that 20% of the stars in our galaxy have Earth-sized planets orbiting their stars in their habitable zone. That is where you have the right temperature for liquid water. So I see absolutely no reason why life would appear here and not there, uh, and lots of theirs. And since the whole history of life on Earth is one of uh, development from simpler forms to more complex forms, manifesting greater capacities for activity and intelligence and ever more rapid evolution, in fact, um, I think intelligence is probably everywhere. It, not because, okay, just to be clear, that evolution automatically goes towards intelligence. Evolution goes in all possible directions. Intelligence is one useful adaptation. Wings and flight are another. Okay, you know, physical strength is another. There's lots of useful um, adaptations that life can, can um, develop, but intelligence is one of them and it's not gonna miss it. Uh, and um, so I think intelligent life is probably everywhere. All right. Returning to the case for space, both of these books, by the way, folks are available on audio and uh, the narrator does a very good job. In chapter four of this book, you write of the potential of a privately funded colony on uh, Mars to become a Martian Menlo Park. Talk a bit about how the exigencies of a Mars colony would spur inventions that could be licensed um, back here on Earth and how revenues from such an arrangement might finance further development. Okay, well, there's a couple of things about Mars. Okay, Mars is gonna be a frontier environment inhabited largely by a technologically adept population that is gonna be faced with many challenges and which is gonna be free to uh, find new solutions for those challenges. Uh, this is a dynamic we saw on the American frontier. 
and, and also one other factor that was also true in uh, er early America was a labor shortage. Um, so what you had here was uh, to address the labor shortage, well, there were actually two attempts to address it. Uh, one was in the South with slavery, forced labor, um, but the other in the North was inventive labor, uh, where you attempted to deal with the labor shortage through labor-saving machinery and public education that has increased the skills of the population and increased the technology available to the population so as to multiply the powers of knit labor. Um, and this became a very powerful thing. And of course, since the average product available per person on average is the same as the average product produced per person and technology is basically the tools that multiply the productivity of a person, the higher the technology, the higher the standard of living. They, they are essentially the same thing uh, on average. Of course, there, there can be displacements here, but this is why, so the short labor shortage leads to higher wages, both by supply and demand of labor, but also through its imperative to invent more productive labor saving or put it more, this way, labor multiplying technologies, okay? So this is what we became virtuosos at. And of course, the American inventor is a stereotype, um, which has a basis in reality, starting you know, with Benjamin Franklin and Tom Edison, Robert Fulton, the Wright brothers, you know, it, it goes on. And the, the, well, Mars is gonna be all this multiplied to the limit because you're gonna have a much more extreme labor shortage on Mars than you had in colonial or 19th century America. Um, you're gonna have therefore an incredible drive to create labor saving machinery, including both labor saving machinery, automation, robotics, artificial intelligence. All these things are methods of multiplying the power of labor. Um, so, the Martians are going to be driven in all these areas. Now, all these sorts of inventions uh, represent patentable technologies that could be patented on Earth to earn income. There's other things the Martians are going to want. They're going to want ultra-productive um, crops because they will have limited land. They're all, the only agricultural land they'll have is inside of greenhouses. So they're not going to let a bunch of kooks say, you can't do genetic engineering because the tomatoes could get loose and kill everybody. They're going to look to invent the most productive kinds of crops, that, both in rate of growth and in nutrition and so forth, that, that, that you can have. And once again, those innovations will be licensable on earth. Then energy. Okay. You know, there are people working on fusion power on earth, but it's not viewed as an urgent area because we have so many other ways you can generate energy. You have fossil fuels, you've got waterfalls, windmills, solar energy, nuclear fission. Well, there's no fossil fuels on Mars. You could synthesize them, but it takes energy to do that. So there's no gain there. Um, wind is very thin. Solar energy is less than half as strong as Earth. Uh, nuclear fission could certainly be used on Mars, but to make nuclear fuels requires a large industrial base. Uh, and division of labor, whereas fusion uses deuterium, which is present in water, and in fact on Mars is five times as common as is on Earth. So there's going to be a tremendous drive on Mars to develop nuclear fusion. Just like, you know, 
The British invented the steam engine. Americans invented the steamboat. And we did it in 1790s. We were barely independent. We invented steamboats. And because the, the highways, the best highways we had were rivers. And the sailboats don't really cut it on rivers because it's got a constant current in this direction. And you've got to be able to fight that. And you want steamboats. And now being forced to invent steamboats, you required steam engines to be more efficient than was acceptable in steam engines that were just pumping water out of mines, which is what you had in England. So the steamboat engine became a higher compression engine, a more efficient engine, something compact enough to drive a steamboat. And that's what really led to the perfection of steam engines and then railroads and so forth. The, the, the nuclear power uh, really only became practical when we uh, used it to drive submarines. Um, and, and that remains a place where it is unchallenged. Um, because of the unique challenges of submarine propulsion, where you can't use solar panels to drive a submarine, so forth. Yeah, I'm surprised they haven't they haven't tried. But yeah, okay, well, all right, well, <laughs> they will. But the <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. So yes. you have a population of of technically adept people in a frontier environment where they're free to innovate and forced to innovate. They're going to innovate. Those inventions will be licensable on earth and that's where you get the income. And I think by the way, that if um, a Mars colony was to be financed as a private enterprise venture, that would be the business plan. Interesting. All right, almost as a venture capital uh, rather, you know, yeah. than primarily mining or something else. Okay, a few more questions. We've got about a uh, little less than 20 minutes and I do wanna end on philosophy. So we'll try to get the, to these sort of rapid round if you don't mind. Aaron Bertrand on Facebook asks, this is a great question. Thoughts on the loss of tinkerers, people no longer discovering new things due to regulations, restricting what people can do. Um, but, you know, also, I just remember there was all kinds of kits and people were building rockets and robots and all kinds of things. And I don't know if that's still going on or if it's just all being done uh, already pre-made and prefabricated. Well, it's my impression that that has decreased, but not entirely gone. Uh, you know, part of the, the whole safety culture, you know, parents are more reluctant to let the kids play with chemistry sets and stuff like this. And uh, the, the, and also, okay, you certainly do have a, a lot of young people doing incredible things with software. Um, so um, a kid that once upon a time might play with chemistry sets and erector sets and things is now playing with software. Um, one problem with that is certain numbers are actually doing programming, which is a creative activity, but others are just playing the computer game. Um, and that's not as productive. Got it. All right. Um, from Facebook, Clark Andrews asks, whatever happened to the space elevator inventor contests? He remembers those used to be a big thing. Is reusable rockets more viable? Well, reusable rockets are certainly more viable. Maybe it, tell, tell people what, what is meant by a space elevator first. Okay. Uh, a space elevator, it, it's a counterintuitive um, idea, but it, 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 it's theoretically sound. Um, 
is that if you have a satellite in geosynchronous orbit, which is something it's about 22,000 miles up and it orbits the earth at exactly the same pace as the earth turns. So from the point of view of the ground, it always looks like it's staying in the same place. And a lot of our communication satellites are actually uh, exactly that. This idea was thought of by Arthur Clarke back in the 40s and we use them. Um, but anyway, if you lowered a cable from one of those to the ground, you could literally climb it to space um, if you had a cable that was strong enough. And that's the hard part, okay? Because you see, this cable's gotta be 22,000 miles long. Now, the bottom piece, let's say you just wanted to put 100 pounds at the bottom of the cable, okay? And have it be taken up on like a little cable car. Well, fine. The bottom piece of the cable just has to hold a load of 100 pounds. But the next piece of the cable above that has to hold the 100 pounds plus the piece of cable that is holding the 100 pounds. So it has to be a bit thicker. And then the next piece of cable above that has to be thicker still because it's holding the load and the two uh, other pieces of cable and so forth. And the way it works is, is that if you use the kinds of materials we have now for the cable, that is the strongest materials we have now, things like Kevlar and Spectra, uh, which are much stronger than steel, by the way, um, it would still, the, the cable would weigh about a billion times as much as the payload. Um, so this is not terribly practical. Now, it would work on the moon, where the moon has one sixth gravity, and in consequence, the cable can be much thinner and you could have a, a cable taking something in, uh, into free space from the surface of the moon and the cable might only weigh 10 times as much as the payload, which, you know, after you've lifted enough payloads, it certainly pay for itself. So the idea of a, a lunar space elevator or skyhook, as we used to call them, uh, actually is technically feasible with current materials. But to do an Earth one, we'd have to create more advanced materials. Now, there's some people think that um, carbon nanofibers can lead to that, maybe. So it, it, the space elevator remains, uh, it's theoretically sound, but from a practical point of view, we could only do it on the moon. Um, Interesting, all right. To prove the materials, it, it could become a thing. It's so Diesel on Twitter asks, who has shaped your views the most? Has Ayn Rand had any role? A little. Uh, I would say, um, you know, I didn't read Ayn Rand until I was already an adult. Uh, so it's hard to change the views of an adult. But the the uh, but also I, I did read Ayn Rand as an adult and I also read uh, Hayek as an adult. And uh, I found his book, The Road to Serfdom and then The Constitution of Liberty, extremely valuable. But as a youth, this thing that set me in this direction, I'd say was Heinlein. Um, favorite Heinlein uh, book? Robert Heinlein. Uh, oh, my favorite Heinlein book. Yes. It's man, man who who sold moon. That you'd think that, but as a kid, that wasn't my favorite book. I I would say it was like have spacesuit will travel. You know, uh, which was a you know a book for juveniles. Uh, and then later on, when I got to be a teenager, he came out with uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which was a bit more uh, adult in orientation. But 
But the, the, the thing about the Heinlein, but you also had Red Planet and the Heinlein juveniles, which I read as a juvenile, uh, you know, it was always about the kid with his, you know, slide rule. Um, see, I'm a time traveler. I come from a different time. Uh, the, um, and, uh, and his Swiss army knife and his self-reliance. Uh, and he's kidnapped by aliens. He goes out into space and he gets into an incredible adventure, but he can pull it out because he's a self-reliant individualist who's mentally equipped to deal with the situation. And frequently, maybe the kids actually save the whole space colony too. But the the but that that's what it was. Uh, and um, so Heinlein was a champion of this kind of self-reliant individualism. Um, not exactly libertarian, I wouldn't say, but um, in terms of the fundamental ethos that is the basis of, well, liberty, uh, he was all there. Excellent. All right. Uh, this is an interesting question. Richard Bryan on Facebook asking if you have thoughts on transhumanism. Will we eventually modify ourselves so much that we are no longer truly human. Uh, I don't know about that second part, but you know when you were talking about uh, the okay, well, shortages and, and the needs that that will okay. have. Well, I think that humans will diversify. Um, I think that, in other words, especially once we go interstellar, which I believe we will. Uh, I, I believe that the interplanetary civilization that we will begin in our time will eventually lead to further innovations that will allow us to become inter interstellar. Um, and when we go to the stars, there's going to be many new nations, new branches of human civilization, and they will have diverse ideas. To some of them, the ideas of transhumanism will be uh, 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 viewed as horrendous and, and they won't do it but others will be enthusiastic about it. Uh, and so you will have, in some of these societies, people will decide to modify themselves. In some cases for substantial reasons, to better adapt to a new kind of planet, maybe heavier gravity, lighter gravity, this or that, or mm -hmm. they figure out how to make people more intelligent and they choose to take advantage of that. Um, or uh, it may be reasons of fashion, uh, you know, Blue skin and pointed ears may become fashionable somewhere. And the, the um, I mean, you know, I got employees in my company here who got purple hair, and, you know, and, you know, my day, that never would have happened. But the, the um, but there it is, uh, you know, so people have both serious and flippant reasons to want to alter their appearance. And um, in some places that that will happen. And so, you know, you watch Star Trek, and you meet aliens who like Vulcans or something that they have superficial differences in their appearance from humans, but they basically look like humans. And I think it's unlikely that we'll actually meet aliens, real aliens that resemble us so closely. Okay. Cause there's so many other ways they could look. Uh, but I think that eventually the human race will diversify in a way where we create where new varieties of humans evolve that may have uh, comparable um, diversifications, um, including fanciful ones. 
And uh, so that in the far future, people, when we meet people who come back from Tor Setai, they may very well have pointed ears and stuff like this, if that's what they like. All right. Um, I'm going to just take one more of these questions, and then I wanted to, as I mentioned, end on philosophy. But um, also, you are very active on Twitter. Is that primarily the place that people should follow you? Well, I'm active on Twitter, a little less active on Facebook and LinkedIn. But yeah, I, I, I have a, a bad Twitter habit, yeah. Okay. All right. So I, I, I mentioned that because for those of you who we didn't get your questions uh, asked or answered, you might try sh doing a shout out to uh, Robert on Twitter. And, uh, and if he's in a, on a Twitter tear, he might uh, be able to grace you with an answer. But this last one I thought was important. Isaiah 1623 on Twitter do you think the Green New Deal is going to hamper the discovery of better power generation technology? Oh, the Green New Deal that is being pushed in Congress by yeah. mm -hmm. so-called left? Um, it's just junk. Um, the, 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 look, uh, it's unfortunate that the left, which once upon a time for all of its problems, rejected Malthusianism because they saw clearly that it was just a con to justify poverty. Uh, they say, well, here's Malthus saying, well, the reason why you're poor is because there just isn't enough to go around, sorry, uh, that, 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 that this was a con, but instead they have embraced it. And, um, and it's a very dangerous idea the, day, the idea that there isn't enough for everyone. Um, okay, there's two answers for that predicament, if you believe it. One is we all use less. The other is we are going to make them use less. Okay, okay so there's the, the left-wing Malthusian and the right-wing Malthusian. And ultimately, the right-wing Malthusian always wins um, because there's always more people who would want them to use less than are willing to use less themselves. Now, the, the, the and that leads to war. Um, you know, we are not in danger today from there being too many people. We are in danger from people who think there are too many people. Um, that is the main threat to humanity today. Uh, the main threat to humanity, I, you should know, I actually think that uh, uh, climate warming is real. Um, and there's a certain amount of reason to be concerned about it, but it's not the main threat facing humanity. I mean, the main threat facing humanity today is global catastrophe, world war caused by the idea that there isn't enough for, for everyone. And so we got to duke it out with the Chinese to get what's ours, or they view it from the other side of the chessboard with comparable thoughts about us. Uh, and if you think that there isn't enough to go around, so sooner or later, we are going to have to fight it out with them, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you believe that sooner or later you're going to have to fight it out with them and they believe the same thing about you, then for one part or the other, sooner is going to be better than later um, by definition. And I mean, this is what caused World War I fundamentally. Uh, you know, 1912, uh, Friedrich von Bernhardi, who's a chief intellectual of German general staff, wrote a book called Germany in the Next War, international bestseller. Here's Eurasia. Who's going to get it? Us or the Russians? We're going to have to have it out sooner or later. Make it sooner before they industrialize. Boom. Uh, Hitler. 
but the laws of existence require uninterrupted killing so the better may live. Germany needs living space. It's all nonsense. Germany never needed living space. Germany today has a much higher standard of living than the Third Reich, even though it has a higher population and less territory. Why? Not because they succeeded in invading other countries, wiping out people and stealing their cows, but because which they failed in, and if they had succeeded, it would not have benefited them in any way whatsoever. Um, the, the reason why Germans today live better than they do in, in 1941 is because of the advance of uh, human technology, which has been a global project in which Germans have participated and so have people they try to exterminate. Uh, and um, if they had succeeded uh, in wiping out the, the Jews, who of course have been major contributors to science and so forth, uh, they'd be poor. And if they contributed wiping out the Poles, they'd be poor. And if they, you know, so this is not, it, it is simply untrue that the reality of the human conditions are races in a struggle for existence over limited resources. The truth is, is that we are a family, a disorderly family to be sure, of nations in a joint project to advance the human condition through creativity, technological innovation, and other kinds of innovations. And because an invention anywhere sooner or later becomes useful everywhere. And so, you know, here's China, which has multiplied its standard of living over the past 30 years by orders of magnitude. Why? Because of inventions ranging from electricity to, you know, iPhones that were made in the West. But of course, the West only had its renaissance because inventions like paper and printing that were made in China. Uh, so we'd be poorer without them. They'd be poorer without us. But if you believe there's only so much to go around, then we're going to have it out. And now the Green New Deal, okay, uh, you know, I mean, look, there's nothing green about it. Uh, the, it's a Malthusian movement. Why, if they were concerned about carbon emissions, they'd be for nuclear power. But they hate nuclear power because it would solve a problem they need to have. The, 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 the problem they need to have is there must be a reason to constrain human growth, okay? In fact, the Sierra Club, which in the 60s had actually been for nuclear power because it doesn't have smoke and everything, um, and air pollution, 1974, they came out against nuclear power. This was following uh, such notable books as The Population Bomb and The Limits to Growth and stuff like this, because they said nuclear power will lead to unnecessary economic growth. Wow. Okay, and the the and then everything else after that was a rationalization. So, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, okay, carbon yeah, it kind of reminds me a bit of of what something else that you'd mentioned in in the book that some of the most vociferous uh, opposition to geoengineering that you know whether it was used to dim the sun or to uh, to fertilize fisheries that uh, that were doing protective and, and restorative things uh, for the planet are opposed by the left because it somehow slows down the the case for for rationing right. carbon and that kind of yeah thing. now now here's the thing okay we'll get to the left in a minute but um, Hitler said that this idea that you can perpetually advance the human condition with greater plenty through science was, he called it a Jewish plot to 
dissuade the population from belief in the necessity for war. Now, it's not a Jewish plot, but it does dissuade people in the belief in the necessity for war. Okay, and that's why he hated it. Okay, now you have these other examples. In the book, The Case for Space, I do recount the um, experiment done by Russ George and the Haida Indians, where, okay, As a result of CO2 enrichment to the atmosphere, plant growth on land has accelerated worldwide. We've actually have a more bountiful biosphere on land because CO2 is raw material for photosynthesis. It's as necessary as water. And on land, it, it is a limiting factor. And we have a greener earth and we have photographs in orbit that document this extensively. Um, in the ocean, it hasn't because the limiting factor for phytoplankton growth, the plant, the microscopic plants that ultimately feed the ocean um, is not CO2. It is trace elements, which are only like iron that are only present in abundance in the ocean off the continental shelves and certain other exceptional areas. What Russ George did was he took a boat, he took a hundred tons of iron sulfate and he went out into the Pacific and just started spreading it all over the water. And he created an enormous phytoplankton bloom, which then fed the baby salmon, who then grew much more successfully into big salmon. And this, he did this. He was funded by the Haida Indian tribe from British Columbia who live on salmon. And it tripled the salmon run, tripled it. Okay. And he was attacked vigorously by these uh, so-called um, greens uh, because gee, he's making it appear that we don't need to do something about carbon emissions. Well, guess what? He was doing something about carbon emissions, okay? He was using carbon emissions. He was turning it into plant material, which was being used to fed salmon, which was being used to fed Indians. And the, the, the um, so he was turning, see, something's only a pollutant if you can't use it. Water in abundance more than you can use is a pollutant on land. It'll turn a farm into a swamp, okay? If you can control it and utilize it, it's useful. Nitrate fertilizers in the right quantities on land are tremendously useful. More than that, it poisons the environment. Okay, the CO2 in the atmosphere on land, it can be used. Now, at least at the levels that it, it, it is at now, it actually has been um, a useful raw material for the, ter the terrestrial, that is the land-based biosphere. The ocean, no, and it, and if you don't have the phytoplankton there to eat it up, it starts to acidify the water. So it then becomes a pollutant. But if you can provide the other stuff the phytoplankton need, then they can multiply, they can eat up the CO2 and they can become food for the rest of the marine food chain. And so here we have- You, you know, have to wrap it up. Okay, well, anyway, this these are the kinds of positive solutions that we can have to this problem. We can turn CO2 from a pollutant into a resource. We can quicken the earth. Well, and we can read more about it, uh, both in the case for space and the case for Mars. I highly recommend both. Again, as I mentioned, the audio versions are excellent. And we're going to be following you, Robert, on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining oh. us. And thank you um, also just for your passion and uh, your leadership in, um, in urging us to continue to pursue uh, that, that final 
frontier, that pioneer. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, <laughs> and thanks to all of you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this video or any of the other content that we create at the Atlas Society, uh, please consider supporting our work. Don't just be a passive consumer. Go to our site and click that donate button. Put something in the tip jar. We'd appreciate it. Uh, please make sure to join me next week. A week from today, I'm going to be joined by my good friend, Corey DeAngelis, and we're going to talk about what's happening in the school choice space, which if you've been watching the news is heating up. And for those of you in Southern California, a week from tomorrow is our gala. So I hope you'll join us. Um, we're going to be hearing from Peter Diamandis and Michael Saylor, and it's just gonna be a fabulous event. I'd love to see you there. Thanks everyone. Well, thank you.